0: Chapter Three of the Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Life and Adventures of Alexander Selkirk by John Howell. Chapter Three. For many days after being left alone. Selkirk was under such great dejection of mind, that he never tasted food until urged by extreme hunger, nor did he go to sleep until he could watch no longer, but sat with his eyes fixed in the direction where he had seen his shipmates depart, fondly hoping that they would return and free him from his misery. Thus he remained seated upon his chest, until darkness shut out every object from his sight. Then did he close his weary eyes, but not in sleep, for morning found him still anxiously hoping the return of the vessel. When urged by hunger, he fed upon seals, and such shellfish as he could pick up along the shore. The reason of this was the aversion he felt to leave the beach, and the care he took to save his powder. Though seals and shellfish were but sorry fare, his greatest inconvenience was the want of salt and bread, which made him loathe his food until reconciled to it by long use. It was now the beginning of October, 1704, which, in those southern latitudes, is the middle of spring, when nature appears in a thousand varieties of form and fragrance, quite unknown in northern climates. But the agitation of his mind, and the forlorn situation in which he was now placed, caused all its charms to be unregarded. There was present no one to partake of its sweets, no companion to whom he could communicate the feelings of his mind. He had to contend for life in a mode quite strange to him, and it was with much difficulty that he sustained the horror of being alone in such a desolate place. If we think for a moment how disagreeable it is to most men to be left by themselves for a few days, we may form a faint idea of his situation and how painful it must have been to him, a sailor accustomed to enjoy and perform all the offices of life in the midst of bustle and fellowship. What greatly added to the horrors of his condition was the noise of the seals during the night, and the crashing made by falling trees and rocks among the heights, which, last, often broke the stillness of the scene with horrid sounds that were echoed from valley to valley. So heart-sinking was his situation, that nothing but divine providence could have sustained him from falling into utter despair. Indeed, when we reflect upon the society Alexander Selkirk had for some time been associated with, and the habits he must have either acquired or become accustomed to, we cannot think it strange that he often thought of putting a period to his sufferings by a violent death so feeble is all the boasted firmness of the most daring courage when left for a length of time to solitude and its own unassisted resources. It was in this trying situation, when his mind, deprived of all outward occupation, was turned back upon itself, that the whole advantages of that inestimable blessing—a religious education in his youth—was felt in its consoling influence— when every other hope and comfort had fled. When misery had subdued the pride of his hard and stubborn heart, it was then he turned to that divine being, of whom he had thought so little at an earlier period. Then the uninhabited wilderness of Juan Fernandez was turned into a smiling garden, and the darkness of that despair that had nearly overwhelmed him began to clear away. By slow degrees he became reconciled to his fate, and as winter approached he saw the necessity of procuring some kind of shelter from the weather. For even in that genial clime frost is common during the night, and snow is sometimes found upon the ground in the morning. The building of a hut was the first object that roused him to exertion, and his necessary absence from the shore gradually weaned his heart from that aim which had alone absorbed all his thoughts and proved a secondary means of his obtaining that serenity of mind he afterwards enjoyed but it was eighteen months before he became fully composed or could be for one whole day absent from the beach and from his usual hopeless watch for some vessel to relieve him from his melancholy situation during his stay he built himself two huts with the wood of the pimento-tree, and thatched them with a species of grass that grows to the height of seven or eight feet upon the plains and smaller hills, and produces straw resembling that of oats. The one was much larger than the other, and situated near a spacious wood. This he made his sleeping-room, spreading the bedclothes he had brought on shore with him upon a frame of his own construction, and as these wore out, OR WERE USED FOR OTHER PURPOSES, HE SUPPLIED THEIR PLACE WITH GOAT'S SKINS. HIS PIMENTO BEDROOM HE USED ALSO AS HIS CHAPEL, FOR HERE HE KEPT UP THAT SIMPLE BUT BEAUTIFUL FORM OF FAMILY WORSHIP WHICH HE HAD BEEN ACCUSTOMED TO IN HIS FATHER'S HOUSE. SOON AFTER HE LEFT HIS BED, AND BEFORE HE COMMENCED THE DUTIES OF THE DAY, HE SUNG A PSALM, OR PART OF ONE, THEN HE READ A PORTION OF SCRIPTURE, AND FINISHED WITH DEVOUT PRAYER. IN THE EVENING, BEFORE HE RETIRED TO REST, THE SAME DUTIES WERE PERFORMED. HIS DEVOTIONS HE REPEATED ALOUD, TO RETAIN THE USE OF SPEECH, AND FOR THE SATISFACTION MAN FEELS IN HEARING THE HUMAN VOICE, EVEN WHEN IT IS ONLY HIS OWN. THE GREATER PART OF HIS DAYS WAS SPENT IN DEVOTION, FOR HE AFTERWARDS SAID, WITH TEARS IN HIS EYES, THAT HE WAS A BETTER CHRISTIAN WHILE IN HIS SOLITUDE than ever he was before, and feared he would ever be again. To distinguish the Sabbath, he kept an exact account of the days of every week and month during the time he remained upon the island, although the method he adopted is not mentioned in any document we have procured. The smaller hut, which Selkirk had erected at some distance from the other, was used by him as a kitchen in which he dressed his victuals, the furniture was very scanty, but consisted of every convenience his island could afford. His most valuable article was the pot or kettle he had brought from the ship to boil his meat in. The spit was his own handiwork, made of such wood as grew upon the island. The rest was suitable to his rudely constructed habitation. Around his dwelling browsed a parcel of goats, remarkably tame, which he had taken when young and lamed, but so as not to injure their health, while he diminished their speed. These he kept as a store, in the event of sickness or any accident befalling him that might prevent him from catching others. His sole method of doing which was running them down by speed of foot. The pimento-wood, which burns very bright and clear, served him both for fuel and candle. It gives out an agreeable perfume while burning. He obtained fire after the Indian method, by rubbing two pieces of pimento wood together, until they ignited. This he did, as being ill able to spare any of his linen for tinder, time being of no value to him, and the labor rather an amusement. Having recovered his peace of mind, he began likewise to enjoy greater variety in his food, and was continually gaining some new acquisition to his store. The crawfish— many of which weighed eight or nine pounds he broiled or boiled as his fancy led seasoning it with pimento jamaica pepper and at length came to relish his food without salt as a substitute for bread he used the cabbage palm which abounded in the island turnips or their tops and likewise a species of parsnip of good taste and flavor he had also sicilian radishes and watercresses, which he found in the neighboring brooks, as well as many other vegetables peculiar to the country, which he ate with his fish or goat's flesh. Having food in abundance, and the climate being healthy and pleasant, in about eighteen months he became reconciled to his situation. The time hung no longer heavy upon his hands. His devotions and frequent study of the Scriptures soothed and elevated his mind, and this, coupled with the vigour of his health and a constantly serene sky and temperate air rendered his life one continual feast his feelings were now as joyful as they had before been melancholy he took delight in everything around him ornamented the hut in which he lay with fragrant branches cut from a spacious wood on the side of which it was situated and thereby formed a delicious bower fanned with continual breezes, soft and balmy, as poets describe, which made his repose, after the fatigues of the chase, equal to the most exquisite sensual pleasures. Yet happy and contented as he became, there were minor cares that broke in upon his pleasing solitude, as it were to place his situation on a level with that of other human beings. For man is doomed to care while he inhabits this mortal tenement, during the early part of his residence, he was much annoyed by multitudes of rats which gnawed his feet in other parts of his body as he slept during the night. To remedy this disagreeable annoyance, he caught, and tamed after much exertion and patient perseverance, some of the cats that ran wild on the island. These new friends soon put the rats to flight, and became themselves the companions of his leisure hours he amused himself by teaching them to dance and do a number of antic feats they bred so fast too under his fostering hand that they lay upon his bed and upon the floor in great numbers and although thus freed from his former troublesome visitors yet so strangely are we formed that when one care is removed another takes its place these very protectors became a source of great uneasiness to him for the idea haunted his mind, and made him at times melancholy, that, after his death, as there would be no one to bury his remains, or to supply the cats with food, his body must be devoured by the very animals which he at present nourished for his convenience. The island abounds in goats, which he shot while his powder lasted, and afterwards caught by speed of foot. At first he could only overtake kids— but latterly so much did his frugal life joined to air and exercise improve his strength and habits of body that he could run down the strongest goat on the island in a few minutes and tossing it over his shoulders carry it with ease to his hut all the byways and accessible parts of the mountains became familiar to him he could bound from crag to crag and slip down the precipices with confidence so great was his strength and speed that he could in a short time tire out even the dogs belonging to the duke and duchess, and outrun them in the most laborious chase. With these capabilities hunting soon became his chief amusement. It was his custom, after running down the animals, to slit their ears and then allow them to escape. The young he carried to the green lawn beside his hut and employed his leisure hours in taming them. They in time supplied him with milk and even with amusement, as he taught them as well as his cats, to dance. And he often afterwards declared that he never danced with a lighter heart or greater spirit anywhere to the best of music than he did to the sound of his own voice with his dumb companions. As the northern part of the island, where Alexander lived, is composed of high, craggy precipices, many of which are almost inaccessible, though generally covered with wood, the soil is loose and shallow, so that on the hills the largest trees soon perish for want of nourishment, and are then very easily overturned. This was the cause of the death of a seaman belonging to the Duchess, who, being on the high grounds in search of goats, caught hold of a tree to aid his ascent, when it gave way, and he rolled down the hill. In his fall he grasped another of considerable bulk, which likewise failed him and he was precipitated amongst the rocks and dashed to pieces. Mr. Butt also met with an accident merely by leaning his back to a tree nearly as thick as himself, which stood up on a slope, without almost any hold of the soil. Our adventurer himself nearly lost his life from a similar cause. When pursuing a goat he made a snatch at it on the brink of a precipice of which he was not aware as some bushes concealed it from him. The animal suddenly stopped, upon which he stretched forward his hands to seize it, when the branches gave way, and they both fell from a great height. Selkirk was so stunned and bruised by the fall, that he lay deprived of sensation, and almost of life. Upon his recovery he found the goat lying dead beneath him. This happened about a mile from his hut. Scarcely was he able to crawl to it, when restored to his senses, and dreadful were his sufferings during the first two or three of the ten days that he was confined by the injury. He lay stretched upon his bed, unable to move, but with extreme pain. There was no human being to reach him, a drink of cold water, or to do the smallest service for him. Yet he did not despair. His heart was at ease, and he poured it forth in prayer." He felt a peace of mind which religion can alone bestow, and, even in this forlorn and painful situation, a ray of hope enlivened the gloom with which he was surrounded. This was the only disagreeable accident that befell him during his long residence on the island. W. Rogers says he lay above the goat deprived of sensation for twenty-four hours. Sir R. Steele mentions three days. Selkirk computed the length of time by the moon's growth from the last observation which he had made on the evening before his fall. He occasionally amused himself by cutting upon the trees his name and the date when he was left on the island, and at times added to the first the period of his continuance, so averse is man to be utterly forgotten by his species. Perishable as the material was upon which he wrought, still the idea was pleasing to his lonely mind that, when he should have terminated his solitary life, some future navigator would learn from these rude memorials that Alexander Selkirk had lived and died upon the island. He had no materials for writing wherewith to trace a more ample record. Upon Lord Anson's arrival, however, at Juan Fernandez in the year 1741, there was not, so far as his researches went, one of these names or dates to be discovered upon any of the trees. Abbe Reynal is not correct when he says that Selkirk lost the use of speech while upon the island. All that Cook asserts is that, at his first coming on board, he spoke his words, as it were, by halves from want of practice, while he states distinctly that he carried on conversation from the first, and that this hesitating manner gradually wore off. As to his clothing, it was very rude. Shoes he had none, as they were soon worn out. This gave him very little concern, and he never troubled himself in contriving any substitute to supply their place. As his other clothes decayed, he dried the skins of the goats he had killed to convert into garments, sewing them with slender thongs of leather, which he cut for the purpose, and using a sharp nail for a needle. In this way he made for himself a cap, jacket, and short breeches. The hair, being retained upon the skin, gave him a very uncouth appearance, but in this dress he ran through the underwood, and received as little injury as the animal he pursued. Having linen-cloth with him, he made it into shirts, sewing them by means of his nail, and the threads of his worsted stockings, which he untwisted for that purpose. Thus rudely equipped— he thought his wants sufficiently supplied, fashion having no longer any empire over him. His goats and cats being his sole companions, he was at least neighborlike, and looked as wild as they. His beard was of great length, as it had been untouched since he left the ship. Still his mind was at ease, and he danced and sang amongst his dumb companions for hours together. Perhaps as happy a man— "'nay, happier than the gayest ball-room "'could have presented in the most civilized country upon earth. "'One day, in his ramble along the beach, "'he found a few iron hoops, "'which had been left by some vessel "'as unworthy to be taken away. "'This was to him a discovery that imparted more joy "'than if he had found a treasure of gold and silver. "'For with them he made knives when his own was worn out, "'and, bad as they were, they stood him in great stead. One of them, which he had used as a chopper, was about two feet in length, and was long kept as a curiosity at the Golden Head coffee-house near Buckingham Gate. It had been changed from its original simple form, having, when last seen, a buck's horn handle with some verses upon it. Alexander Selkirk, at different times during his stay, saw vessels pass the island, but only two ever came to an anchor. At these times he concealed himself, but, being anxious on the one occasion to learn whether the ship was French or Spanish, he approached too near, and was perceived. A pursuit immediately commenced, and several shots were fired in the direction in which he fled, but fortunately none of them took effect, and he got up into a tree, unobserved. His pursuers stopped near it, and killed several of his goats, but the vessel soon left the island. Cook says, "'The prize being so inconsiderable, it is likely they thought it not worth while to be at great trouble to find it. Had they been French, Alexander would have given himself up to them. But, being Spaniards, he chose rather to stay upon the island and run the risk of dying alone, and even of being devoured by his own cats, than fall into their hands, as they would either have murdered him in cold blood, or caused him to linger out a life of misery in the mines of Peru or Mexico, unless he chose to profess himself a Roman Catholic. And even then he would have been compelled to pass his weary days in one of their coasting vessels in the Pacific Ocean. For, as we have already mentioned, it was one of their maxims never to allow an Englishman to return to Europe who had gained any knowledge of the South Seas. This adventure made him resolve to use more caution in future. Never a day passed, but he anxiously looked out for some sail over the vast expanse of ocean that lay before him. For even in all his tranquillity and peace of mind, the wish to leave the island never entirely ceased to occupy his thoughts, and he would still have hailed the arrival of an English ship with rapture i shall close this chapter with walter's description of the island upon lord anson's arrival there in the spring of the year seventeen forty one the woods which covered most of the steepest hills were free from all bushes and underwood and offered an easy passage through every part of them and the irregularities of the hills and precipices in the northern part of the island necessarily traced by their various combinations a great number of romantic valleys most of which had a stream of the clearest water running through them that tumbled into cascades from rock to rock as the bottom of the valleys by the course of the neighbouring hills was at any time broken into a sudden sharp descent some particular spots occurred in these valleys where the shade and fragrance of the contiguous woods the loftiness of the overhanging rocks and the transparency and frequent falls of the neighbouring streams presented scenes of such elegance and dignity as are but rarely paralleled in any other part of the globe it is on this place perhaps that the simple productions of unassisted nature may be said to excel all the fictitious descriptions of the most animated imagination such were the dominions of alexander selkirk everything around was calculated by nature under propitious circumstances to raise cheerfulness in a well regulated mind but on the other hand no less fitted from the awful solitude which reigned around, to create, in those of a different cast of character, a depression of spirit amounting almost to despair. Such was the effect indeed which these scenes successively had upon our hero himself. At his first arrival, and for some months afterwards, it was with difficulty he could support his new situation. So great was his melancholy that, to escape from himself, he often meditated suicide. It was in the depth of his misery that the influence of an early religious education was felt in all its power, when every human resource had failed, and no hope remained. For, like a bird in the fowler's snare, any other effort would only have added to his distress. Thus the triumph of religion became complete— and its divine power shone forth in the mind of this profane and boisterous seaman, by preserving him from self-destruction, or from sinking into a state of barbarity, and, at length, by bringing him forth from his trials, as metals are purified in the furnace, a better man than ever he had been before he entered upon his life of solitude. End of chapter 3 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista